Um, we're going through 1 Corinthians, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church, to the Christians in Corinth. Um, now, if you were to go a little bit further in your New Testaments to the letter of 2 Peter, you would find Peter talking about Paul's letters. And one of the things he says about Paul's letters is that there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And you're like, yep. Start nodding your head. And today we get to one of those passages. Um, now, it's not readily clear that this passage was hard for the original readers to understand, but we find it hard for us to understand. So before we get into it, I just want to say a few words of how do we approach hard to understand passages? Because you come to the Bible, I, I imagine you want, you want to learn, you want to grow, you want God to speak and to work in you, and you expect that. And then sometimes you get to passages like this and you just find yourself confused, wondering, uncertain. What are we supposed to do? So let me just give you a couple things. First of all, focus on what is clear. Let the clear parts of Scripture and the clear parts of God's Word inform the unclear. The most important things in Scripture are clear. God does not desire to be hidden, to be, to, for us to not know Him. He wants to be known. He says, seek and you will find. He, he has revealed Himself and His will and His character to us. And all that is important and necessary for us can be seen clearly in Scripture. Second thing to consider, as you come across passages like this, maybe you have a study Bible with all the, the notes on the bottom, or maybe you read commentaries from time to time, or different helps. Um, you know, there are various helps outside of the Bible to help you read the Bible. There is various extra-biblical information, so things about context and culture and uh, traditions of that time and all of this. You may make use of that, but don't treat it as authoritative. If an interpretation relies completely on this outside the Bible information, be careful from putting too much weight on it or making a rule out of it. That's how cults are started. It's true. We believe the Bible is trustworthy and inspired. We don't believe that anything else is on that level, no matter how helpful it may be in helping us understand the Bible. And so today, in this passage before us, there are some things that are abundantly clear and that we can see it uh, affirmed by the rest of Scripture. And we're going to spend most of our time on those things. And then there are some things that are not at all clear, even to top biblical scholars. And we're not going to spend all day guessing and assuming and drawing applications from those things. Okay? So we'll begin in verse 2. We're going to go through verse 16 today, but we'll just read verse 2 to start off. 1 Corinthians 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now I just want to pause here real quick before going on. And we've noted this before, but notice Paul's ability to say positive things about this completely dysfunctional church. If there was a competition for most dysfunctional churches throughout history, Corinthians would be in the running. Like this is a, there's a lot of problems. There are some serious things going on in this church. Like this would make the news today. And yet still, Paul can find 
some ways to encourage them. He began the letter by saying, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So the basis for how and why he can encourage them is the grace of God. This may seem like a very simple thing, but this is such an important principle. Our view of others shouldn't be dominated by how imperfect they are, by all the ways that they are not what they should be or ought to be, by all of the sin that still remains in their life, by how frustrating they can be, but by what God has done, is doing, and has promised to do in his people. Like Paul, we should fight to see where God is working and to point it out and to encourage others by pointing to it. Even when there is much that is frustrating, even when there's much remaining sin. This is such an important principle in relationships in the church, especially if you get into leadership of any sorts, where the temptation is and our heart's condition is to get frustrated and bitter and dwell on people's shortcomings. We tend to have these planks in our eyes and maximize other people's shortcomings and minimize our own. But we are encouraged here to focus on the grace of God at work in others um, and give thanks for that. Okay, moving on. Having said that, we see that Paul is willing to bring some correction to the Corinthians where they are wrong. So I'm going to read the rest of this section through verse 16. And let me just set this up so you kind of know where we're going. Uh, so there's obviously some issue going on in Corinth involving a, a cultural practice of head coverings that Paul is going to address. He's going to begin with a universal principle in verse 3, which we're going to spend most of our time on, and then addresses the Corinthians' behavior surrounding this cultural practice of head coverings. All right, bear with me. We'll read through this. You'll have questions that we won't answer all today. <laughs> but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to her to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. All right, so 
probably something just to state off the bat is it, we can assume that this was much more basically understandable to the Corinthian readers. I mean, Paul doesn't really try to give explanation of what he's saying. He just assumes they're on the same page. So this, uh, this was obviously much more understandable to them than it is to us. We're going to spend most of our time on verse 3 because that is the clearest passage verse in this passage. Uh, and the rest of the passage is a specific application of the theological truth in verse 3 concerning these traditions and customs of that culture, the Corinthians' behavior in these traditions, all of which is not very clear to us. However, I want to start with the unclear, just to say a few words on that, and then we're going to spend most of our time on the unclear, so, or on the clear. So the bulk of this passage concerns head coverings and whatever these head coverings meant or communicated in that culture. But we don't know exactly what that is. We don't know exactly what these head coverings were or what they meant. Uh, the original Greek phrase literally means down from the head. So just a couple of options that people think that this may mean. Again, this is fairly speculative, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But just so you know, one option is that this refers to long hair, as Paul does talk about that in the latter verses. So, and there the meaning would be that when men pray or prophesy with long hair, they dishonor their spiritual head, which is Christ. But when women, probably married women, pray or prophesy with short hair, whatever that may have communicated, they dishonor their spiritual head, which is their husband. Another option is that this refers to some sort of veil that covers the face. Uh, it may have in mind a Roman custom where um, in the worship of pagan gods, men would cover their face, with their, their pull their togas over their head. And so it may just mean don't worship God like you worship pagan gods. There also may have been a cultural meaning to women who uncovered their head in public as communicating something of... Um, sexual availability or that they were unmarried, which if they were married would bring dishonor to their husbands. At least part of the issue here is women acting in ways that brought dishonor to their husbands. But the fact is, we don't know for sure. We are limited in what we know about the cultural traditions at that time, and whatever we do know, we have to look outside the Bible for. And so we shouldn't base any, any applications, any rules, draw any rules for us off what we do not know for sure. There is obviously some culturally limited aspects to this, that we don't want to make a rule for all times and all people. However, this issue that Paul is addressing, he addresses first and foremost, in verse 3, with a theological principle, with a universal truth that he's going to draw a specific application from. So we're going to spend our time there. So let me read verse 3 again. So I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, bear with me. I know this is a little, uh, get, perhaps seems to be getting into the weeds, but we need to get 
make sure we understand this first before we draw out some applications. So there are a couple words we have to define and understand just in this verse. The words translated man or husband are one and the same. Same with the words translated uh, woman or wife. Your translations will vary, and even in mine, sometimes it's wife, sometimes it's woman. Um, they can mean either, depending on the context, and it's the context that determines whether it's wife or woman, man or husband. So which is it? Well, even though some of the parts of this passage do refer to men and women in general, later on, the universal principle in verse 3 that Paul grounds everything else in has to do with married women and married men. This is not about every man having headship, which we'll define, over every woman, but about the God-given roles and responsibilities within the marriage relationship. This is attested to clearly in other scripture passages, like Ephesians 5, which we're going to read here shortly, um, where it's clearly talking about marriage, husbands and wives, and uses the same term, head. Now, what does head mean? Well, obviously head means head, and it does throughout this passage at times. The, the same root word is used throughout these verses, sometimes clearly meaning just literally physical head of the body, and sometimes clearly having a more figurative, symbolical sense. Um, and, and this is kind of easy for us to understand, right? Because in English, we say the same thing. We say that somebody is the head of a company, meaning they have leadership and authority in the company. Or we, or we speak of the headwaters of a river, meaning the source of where the river comes from. And in Greek, the word could have the same meaning. Sometimes it means authority. Sometimes it means source in symbolical senses. But several factors favor an understanding of some kind of authority in this passage. And this is important before we move on, so let me take a little bit of time to explain why that is. Verse 10, a symbol of authority on their heads, reveals that the specific application Paul is dealing with has to do with authority at least to a degree. Authority is one of the issues at play here. Paul speaks of it clearly in verse 10. Secondly, Paul does go on to talk about the source of men and women in verses 8 and 9, but he says that that can go both ways, right? Man is the original source of woman as God created Eve from Adam's rib, and yet now men come from women. This being the case, it makes little sense to state a universal principle up front that men are the source of women, if you took this meaning, and then base the entire argument on that, but then say, well, it's actually equally true the other way around. Kind of break apart the argument. Third, the rest of Scripture clearly attests to husbands having a position of, that carries some authority in marriage. And then lastly, the vast majority of church history has taken this to be about authority, even when at times head is seen as meaning source. Again, I realize this has been a bit dense so far. We've needed to do some hard work in order to begin unpacking what this means for us. So let me summarize this, and then we'll do that. God has ordained that there are various levels of headship that come with some authority. God the Father is the head of 
God the Son, Jesus. Jesus, Christ, is head over all humanity, but here in particular over married men is the point. And married in marriage, men are head over women. Now, before we understand, before we can understand what this means, we need to acknowledge that our view of things, including things like authority and men and women, are in part shaped by the culture we live in. We are not immune to having our responses and our beliefs to these things and our natural way we feel about these things, even as Christians, from being influenced by the world around us. So it's helpful to just acknowledge that in the world around us, authority is at best suspicious. And submitting to authority is simply a recipe for being abused. We are taught that men and women have no significant differences, and so there certainly shouldn't be differences in their positions and roles anywhere in society. And so to suggest that there are God-established differences in authority between husbands and wives is perhaps the most offensive thing you could say today. In light of what our culture says about these things, let's unpack what the Scripture says. First of all, Scripture says that authority and worth are not the same thing. That is, you don't get your worth as an individual from the power, authority, whatever that you have in society. Your worth is not determined by what authority you have or don't have. If that were the case, this passage would be saying that God the Father has more authority, more worth, more worth than Jesus. And the husbands have more worth or of greater worth than wives. And Scripture does not let us say any of those things. Genesis 1 is absolutely foundational. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then what does it say? Male and female, he created them. It's a, it's a parallel. Image of God is both male and female. They are both created in the image of God to display the image of God. And so the thinking that men are more important or valuable than women is completely unbiblical. The picture of men being domineering and harsh with women, very common throughout history, is not from the Bible. That is men abusing their role, not fulfilling it. The Bible tells husbands specifically to not be harsh with their wives, but to live with them in an understanding way. And in fact, verses 11 and 12 here in this passage offer us a good corrective that we not take this too far. Let me just read those verses again. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not independent of man, nor man of women. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So in God's design, men and women are interdependent. Yes, man was created first, but now men come from women. Hence, men, we cannot claim to have no need for women or no need to protect and care for and nurture them. Otherwise, there would be no men or women. Furthermore, all things are from God. And so neither men or women can claim to be the ultimate source or ultimate authority 
Neither men or women can claim to be self-sufficient, able to create and sustain life on their own. We need God. We need each other. The, the foundational thing before we go on in any of this is that men and women, husbands and wives, are equally valued not because of anything that we think, say, or feel, not because of what any culture has said or suggested, but because God says that is the case. That doesn't change. Our worth and identity come from God. Both men and women are created in the image of God. Both men and women can be saved and become beloved children of God, when saved, both men and women are indwelt by the Spirit and have spiritual gifts of value to offer to the church. A church that only makes use of the gifts of men is not a healthy church, just like a marriage that only makes use of the contributions of husbands is not a healthy marriage. And yet, within the equality of a marriage relationship, God does call husbands to a headship, to a position of some, not ultimate, but some authority and leadership. So what does this look like? Let's turn to Ephesians 5. I'm going to read this passage. You've likely heard it before, and we're going to just draw a few things out of it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head, same word, of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And he quotes Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, a few things to notice here. First of all, all human authority is authority under authority. All human authority is accountable to Christ. The head of every man is Christ. A husband is not an ultimate authority. A husband is accountable to and submits to Christ and to the Word of God. And because every husband and every human instituted authority, even authorities that come from God, are sinners, they are, they are not without the need to be corrected by God's word and to be led to repentance. And whenever human authority, including husbands, go against or beyond God's word, those under authority are accountable to God above man. Second, a husband's authority is servant-hearted and sacrificial, right? The example given is Christ, who gave himself up for the church. 
A husband demonstrates godly leadership by being willing to, willing to die to himself. Willing to die to his desires and needs to give up himself in order to serve his wife. He is intimately in tune with his wife's needs and wants and feelings. Doesn't make them ultimate, but is willing to put them above his own. Third, a husband's authority takes responsibility for the health of the marriage. Christ took responsibility for our condition, took initiative for things that he ultimately, that were not ultimately his responsibility for, right? He didn't, didn't just say, well, that's your issue, you deal with it. No, in love, he came towards us. He took our sin and guilt. He became our savior, not merely just doing the bare minimum of what was expected or required, but going out of his way to give himself and take responsibility for us and our condition. And so headship, if it means anything, means taking responsibility. And husbands sin both when they abstain from taking responsibility and when they abuse this responsibility. We can abstain from our responsibility by being passive and disengaged, perhaps merely just providing financially, but then otherwise being disconnected from the family. Or we can abuse our responsibility and lead harshly, demonstrating the exact opposite of the tender and patient and kind and forbearing and compassionate self-giving love of Christ that we are called to emulate. Fourth, the authority of a husband receives the submission of the wife as a weighty opportunity to steward well for the glory of God. The, the, the passage here in Ephesians mentions, mentions nourishing and cherishing. That this is what Christ does for his body, his people, and this is what husbands are called to do to their wives. Nourish and cherish. The word nourish means to make sure one is healthy, provided for, brought up to maturity. The word cherish means to take care of, to nurture, warm, comfort, and foster. Both of these words imply a deep and tender care for the other not just for their physical needs and sustenance, but for their well-being and health, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically. Now, when you consider this picture of what the Bible actually describes the headship of husbands like, it's hard not to see some beauty in it, right? That's the point. The point is it's a picture, however imperfect, of Christ's beautiful love for his people. The hard part is that a husband's love is always going to be a mixture of beauty and ugliness. Just is. Because every husband is a sinner. There's going to be beautiful aspects and there's going to be ugly aspects. But the reason it's ugly at times isn't because of the headship authority piece, but because the husband is a sinner. And the answer isn't to get rid of headship or biblical roles in marriage, but for husbands to fight to lead in godly ways and wives to fight to submit in godly ways. 
Now our tendency at this point is to is is to want to we want to know what this looks like. Our tendency is to want to draw very black and white lines and clearly delineate what this looks like in every situation. And I think that's exactly where we run into problems. Scripture gives us the big picture. It gives us the purpose and the goal. And within that, there's room for variety. And we should be careful to not go beyond Scripture and make this flesh this out in more specific ways than Scripture does. For example, Scripture nowhere says that women shouldn't work outside of the home. Nowhere says women should do these chores in the house or men should do these chores, or women should do all the parenting and men shouldn't. There's room for a married couple to figure out what works best for them. However, if any of this is failing, and if a marriage isn't heading in a healthy direction, it is first the husband's responsibility to address it, especially if the husband is a believer and knows what they're called to. And particularly when it comes to the spiritual health of the marriage and the family, husbands, it's on you first to take the lead, to take responsibility. A wife may have to step in and do this at times for the good of the family, but this is because the husband is not fulfilling its role, his role. Let me just speak to husbands and wives a little bit in turn. Husbands or wannabe husbands, soon-to-be husbands, whatever, <laughs> how are we doing in this? How are we doing in this? You are not responsible for getting your wife to submit. That's not your first responsibility. You are responsible for leading well and being worthy of being submitted to. It doesn't, remind, it doesn't mean you can't remind your wife of what Scripture says, but your wife is a fully responsible being. I hope you know that. And you don't control her, nor should you try. And if we're honest, men, husbands, it's way easier, way easier to either abdicate or abuse this position. I mean, one example, hear me out, happy wife, happy life, which I propose is abdicating your position. Your wife's happiness is not the ultimate goal. It's a secondary goal. It matters, but godliness matters more. And sometimes godliness means your wife is not happy in the moment because of what you did, but is happier in the end as godliness is pursued. Wives, how are you doing in this? Again, it is not your responsibility for your husband to lead well. You can call them to this. You can point them to Scripture. You can make their job easier. But this is ultimately their responsibility. But how are you doing submitting to your own husband as to the Lord? Do you grant them the right to, do you grant them trust and the right to lead? Um, God doesn't give us any command that's not for our good, and perhaps this is one of the areas where we most need to remember that.
because it's hard. We can be hard to submit to at times. In this, one of the best things that both men and women, husbands and wives can do is be a part of a regular church community, be a regular part of a church community. In the church community, you get examples to witness of what this looks like or doesn't look like, perhaps. You husbands, you have people that can speak into your life and call you to lead well. Wives, the same women that can speak into your life. You get the word of God taught to you in a context like this, and neither one of you gets to say, well, this is all for you. It doesn't apply to me. But more than that, in the church, you are regularly reminded of the sufficiency of God's grace for both you and for your spouse. When the picture we are giving of Christ's selfless, tender love is marred and ugly, when all we can see is our spouse's sin or our own sin, we need the reality of God's grace secured once and for all in the death of Jesus. We need to see that God has welcomed us and continues to welcome us as wayward sinners, as half-hearted lovers, as those drawing deeply on the blood-bought grace and forgiveness of God each and every day. That's how we make it through the day. We are breathing the air of God's grace. And we are called to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. This means extending this grace to our spouse and to everyone in our lives, but for those of you who are married. This is the context where we display this. And whatever sacrifices we find ourselves called to in marriage, it can never outdo the sacrifice of Jesus that brought us to God and secured his favor. Our demands for our marriage, for a marriage that meets our needs or is left less difficult, need to be brought to the light of our daily dependence on the scandalous willing death of Jesus for our sins. The atmosphere, the economy, if you will, of grace that we live in is what we are called to display in our marriages and in all our relationships. As the same grace and welcome ongoing that we receive from Christ, we are to display to one another. And so we ourselves need to continually come back to the well of Christ's favor and mercy and acceptance of us, which is the cross. That's what we're going to do now in communion. In communion, we remember that every waking moment of our life is lived out in the grace of God purchased at the cross. And our marriages, however imperfect and meager, are a picture of this grace. It is where we learn to receive it 
and display it. Let's pray.